Want to teach your kids financial literacy, but not sure where to start? Greenlight can help. With Greenlight, parents can keep an eye on kids' spending and saving, while kids and teens use a card of their own to build money confidence. As a parent, you can send instant money transfers, set up chores, automate allowance, and more. It's a convenient way to run your household, customized to your family's needs, and the easy way to raise financially smart kids. Get started with Greenlight today and get your first month free at greenlight.com slash odyssey. This podcast is graphic and deals with mature subject matter. You're listening to True Crime Chronicles. This week on True Crime Chronicles, we are bringing you a story from Arizona. And before we get into it, I want to introduce all of our listeners to a behind-the-scenes member of the True Crime Chronicles team. Right, Jessica? That's right. So this week, we're going to be talking with Spencer Brudig, who brings us this story. So, Spencer, welcome to the on-air side of things. Hey, thanks so much for having me. So this story, you've been deeply involved in looking into this one this week and talking to a reporter in Arizona at one of our stations there. What can you tell us about uh, the main, well, the victim in this case, Adrian Salinas? Yeah, Adrian was 19 years old. She just moved to Tempe for uh, right after she graduated from high school. And uh, she had this close-knit group of friends. She was known as being just really kind. She had these vibrant eyes, really beautiful. And uh, she had this incredible smile that everyone comments when they see her pictures. And Spencer, what can you tell us about some close relationships she had? She had a boyfriend, right? She did, yeah. She had a boyfriend named Francisco, and they had actually met in eighth grade. She called him Fran. Uh, They were on and off again, but they fought a lot over the status of their relationship. She might have been more in love with him when he was a little bit more casual with her. Um, So that kind of sets up an interesting dynamic through the story. And did she have family living nearby that we know of? Yeah, her parents lived really close by, but this was the first time that she was actually on her own. All right, well, Spencer, let's get into the story of Adrian Salinas. Our story begins in Tempe, Arizona, with a young woman, Adrian Salinas. It's early morning on June 15th, 2013. It's been triple digits for most of the summer so far, and even at two in the morning, the dry Arizona heat hovers around 100 degrees. Adrian and her two roommates have thrown a party for about 40 of their friends and neighbors. What we know is that the party started at about 11 o'clock at night. So this is William Pitts. He's a reporter for KPNX 12 in nearby Phoenix, Arizona. He has been covering news there for almost a decade and has been investigating this case for the past several years. From what we can figure out, Adrian didn't know a whole lot of them. She only knew her roommates. And at some point during the party, Fran was there. So remember, Fran is the on and off again boyfriend mentioned earlier. And they got into an argument over their relationship. You know, she wanted more. He was fairly indifferent about it. He didn't necessarily want to commit. And that led to an argument. After about an hour, Fran and Adrian decide to head to Fran's place in nearby Scottsdale, Arizona. It's about a 15-minute drive. The couple's argument continues there, and Adrian wants to head back to the party, but Fran doesn't want to drive her. So as near as we can tell, she did start walking away from Fran's apartment. Fran then picked her up, and started driving her back to her house. The argument still continued in the car, and at that point, Adrian said, I'm getting out. So he pulled over, and she got out and started walking. Despite their heated conversation, Fran calls Adrian's roommates back at the party and fills them in that she's walking the last several blocks and to check in on her when she gets in. Fran then drives home, 
She walked into the apartment. She had just had an argument with her boyfriend, on-again, off-again boyfriend. Potentially, they just broke up forever. She was not in the mood to have fun. Adrian's distraught, she's intoxicated, and she's feeling alone. She decides to get in her car and drive off. Her destination might be Fran's place. She makes it a couple of blocks before she misses a turn, and it's a very hairpin turn, and slamming into a median. And because she hits the median, she blows a tire, and the car is not disabled, but she can't drive on it anymore. So about a block later, she pulls it over and gets out of the car. There's a witness to that crash who is a barista at Starbucks. She's on her way to work because it's very early in the morning. It's about 3, 4 in the morning. So she calls 911. 911, what's your emergency? They were going around the curb and hit something and then just had two flat tires. That's the only reason we know that this car crashed with her in it. Tempe police go looking for the car and they don't find it because it's pulled over into one of the neighborhoods just off the side of this road. What happens then is a little hard to piece together because all we have is assumptions, a couple of phone calls, and maybe the word of a few people at the apartment in the party who are admittedly intoxicated uh, and using drugs at the same time. So their memories are a little fallible, potentially. Now, even more upset after damaging her car, Adrian starts calling Fran. She calls him 20, maybe 30 times. She packs a bag of clothes and calls a cab, attempting to get back to Fran's place. But she asks the cab to meet her not at her apartment, but at the AMPM gas station, which is a quarter of a mile away. The question that everybody had is, why would you call a cab and not have it meet you at your own apartment? Why would you not want to get picked up in an area you're very familiar with? Why would you not get picked up at home? Why would you want to walk at four in the morning through, admittedly at that point, not the best part of town? And from what the detective came up with, he thinks that it was a combination of embarrassment and Fran. She would have been embarrassed by the collision, embarrassed by everything that was going on. This is Sergeant Alan Akey. He becomes the lead investigator of her disappearance. Because they would have said, well, why do you have a cab coming here? Oh, my car's wrecked, you know, right around the corner. So she, she wouldn't want to answer that question to her friends. So she starts walking the quarter mile from her apartment to the gas station where this cab is supposed to meet her. Somewhere between that apartment and the gas station, she disappears without a trace. Her final two pieces of communication were, there was a text, right? A final text to Fran, and then there was a phone call with the cab company. There was a final text to Fran. That text was sent at 4.43 a.m. to Fran saying, quote, I'm coming over. There was a final call to the cab company. The cab company is Scottsdale's cab guy. The cab company is a strange setup. It's not a cab company in a traditional sense. It's not like you're calling Yellow Cab or a cab in New York City or something like that. This was a cab company with basically two cabs. And it was the father and the son uh, working in the cab. And I think they had one or two other employees. And the father, Tom Simon Sr., was basically dispatch. And his son was the driver. So he gets a call to go pick up Adrian. She says, well, get get her as soon as you can. So this is Tom Simon Sr. He's the owner of the Scottsdale Cab Guy. She's obviously upset. So he takes off to go get her, but that's a 25-minute drive. 
from where he was to where she was. But he pulls into the gas station, looks around, doesn't see her, calls her and proceeds to step out of the car and have a smoke and was never able to get a hold of her. And according to the uh, police report, Tom Simon Jr. calls her repeatedly and even leaves a message for her and never gets a response. And according to Tom Simon Jr., she never shows up. He waits and then he just leaves. His cab does show up on security camera video at the gas station, but it's just him driving by in front of the security camera. So it doesn't necessarily show him, at least not that we've been able to see, uh, having that cigarette. It doesn't show him out of the car at all. It just shows him arriving at the gas station. Can you walk me through uh, the next couple of days that uh, I imagine that there's some kind of lightweight investigation by her friends and family? Her phone is off. What happens over the next three days? Fran's the one that initially sounds the alarm. Um, he is looking for her. He doesn't know where she is. Then Adrian's dad starts to wonder where she is because it's Father's Day. He hasn't heard from her all day. And that would definitely be unusual for your kid not to call you on Father's Day. Fran and Rick, Adrian's dad, meet up and start to do their own sort of investigation. And eventually they find Adrian's car. That's when they call Tempe police. We don't get a call until Sunday from her father, uh, Rick, because it's Father's Day, saying, hey, uh, my daughter hasn't reached out to me. It's just not like her. She would have called. She's not answering her texts, uh, the phone, and she still goes to her voicemail. Tempe police then canvass the entire area, and they start doing their own investigation, trying to find out where she is or where she could be, and looking everywhere. They're looking in every apartment. They're talking to every neighbor. They're talking to every single house they can find. They're looking behind dumpsters. They're looking in bushes. They're looking in tumbleweeds. They're looking for any kind of evidence, trace evidence they can find to try and figure out where she is. Over the next several days, Tempe PD interviews almost every person that was at the party and followed dozens of soft leads. The percentage of a stranger abduction and murder is so much lower than somebody who's involved with somebody and has a motive, if you will, and, and has that passion of something's going on between the two of them that would create that. So statistically, it would be somebody that knew her or, or was closer to her. Now, because of their argument, Fran quickly becomes a person of interest. Let me ask you this. Uh, would you do anything to find her? Huh? Would you do anything? Oh, yeah. I've been, I've been doing everything. I've been in Tempe, passing off wires every two times a day before and after work. But his roommates say they saw him at his own place when he returned from dropping Adrian off, and he is quickly deprioritized as a possible suspect. The way I've described Fran is if I called him right now and said, hey, I'm working the case. I need you to show up. I, I need you to do A, B, and Z. He would come in and do A, B, and Z without hesitation. After initially focusing on partygoers, neighbors, and family, investigators now turn their attention to the cab company and its two employees, Tom Simon Sr., the owner, and Tom Simon Jr., the driver that was to pick Adrian up that night. Tom Simon Sr., we all kind of knew him as Tom Simon, the cab guy, if you did ever talk to him. But when I started looking into this, I found out that that's not his real name. His real name is Tom Avila. He's been going by a different name for a while because as 
Tom Avila, he has a long criminal history. Thomas Simon, go to your knees. You got the idea. He was uh, taken into custody at one point um, at gunpoint for allegedly threatening his girlfriend at the time. I believe there was uh, trafficking in stolen property. There was some fraud. There was some check fraud. Flight from the police. I remember he ran from them, apparently. And now moving on to Tom Simon Jr., who is the actual taxi driver that night. What's his deal? So he is Tom Simon's uh, son. But at the time, at least for a couple of days, police didn't actually know that because he only referred to Tom Simon Jr. as my driver, Tom, not my son, Tom, not my son, who's also the driver. Where it starts getting strange with him is a couple of days after Adrian disappeared, he is taking a fare to the Grand Canyon, which is unusual in itself because... The Grand Canyon is five hours from Phoenix. That's a long cab ride. So apparently he's quoted this couple who called into the silent witness tip line uh, a couple of hundred bucks to take him up to the Grand Canyon and back. On his way back from the Grand Canyon, he gets a call from Tempe police because they know that he is the last person that they know of to have contact with Adrian at all. And it's through Tom Simon Sr. So there's a conference call going on, a three-way conference call with... Tom Simon Sr., his son, and Detective Aki from Tempe Police. They're having this conversation about a missing girl who was supposed to be his fare and what happened to this girl. He was the last person to see her, and they're going through exactly what happened. In the back of the car is still this couple who's on the fare to the Grand Canyon listening to their cab driver talk about being the last person to ever see a missing girl. Eventually, on the drive back, they pull over uh, about... An hour and 45 minutes uh, north of Phoenix to get some gas after this conversation's already happened. And according to the tip, Tom Simon Jr. pops the trunk of his car. He's looking around there and something and pulls out a hacksaw and says, how did this hacksaw get in the back of my trunk? So after that, he sort of becomes the number one person of interest for Tempe police. Ready to start talking to your kids about financial literacy? Meet Greenlight, the debit card and money app that teaches kids and teens how to earn, save, spend wisely, and invest with your guardrails in place. Parents can send instant money transfers, automate allowance, and more. Plus, keep an eye on spending with real-time notifications. Join more than 6 million families building healthy financial habits together on Greenlight. Get your first month free at greenlight.com slash odyssey. That's greenlight.com slash odyssey. There we go. Hi, Tom. How you doing? This is Detective Aki trying to get Tom Simon Jr. to submit to a polygraph test. Can we just knock that out? I can give you a ride. I don't want to do it, man. Why is that? Why wouldn't you want to? Because I don't trust those things. I don't know. The lawyer said not to you. What lawyer? I personally don't care. I just the, well, I didn't think the you lawyer could. said not to because and not to talk to you guys anymore. And not to talk to us. Yeah, because you're really hassling me at this point. No, I, you know, I was a woman hard worker. A lady called me. I went there. She wasn't there. End of story. If you guys don't believe it, go get a warrant. Take me to jail. Tempe police 
after a while, get a warrant for not only his house but also uh, both cabs and they search both cabs. They don't find anything in there that would be any sort of evidence in the disappearance or later on the murder. Tom Simon Jr.'s behavior becomes increasingly strange as time goes on. The police are surveilling him, and at some point he makes them. He seems to notice that he's being followed because he's doing complete 360 turns going down cul-de-sacs. He's going down a road to flip around and see who's following him. In the police report, they call it a heat run, which is basically erratic driving to determine if you're being followed by anybody. And eventually they do lose him in in a parking lot and they call off the surveillance. Um, And then I I believe a day or two later, he comes in for for the DNA swab. Police security cameras record the entire interaction. It's very odd. You know, we, we popped up this video to look at it. All of us were kind of shocked and amazed by the bizarre behavior. At this point, he's handcuffed. He is shirtless because Tempe police have taken his clothing uh, and his personal effects. They leave him in there for a little while, I guess because they're getting the kit together or maybe just to sweat him. I don't know what they're doing. But he's in there and he starts just kicking like a red plastic solo cup, like it's a hacky sack for a while. And then he starts doing the same thing with chairs and he starts rearranging furniture and kicking some of the furniture. He doesn't look angry. He's not yelling and screaming to, you know, let him out or anything like that. He's just doing it. Have a seat. Now you want to hurry. We have an order. We have have a chest. I just need you to have a seat. Can you take the handcuffs off, please? <laughs> I'm not allowed to have fun, man. You said to relax. I was relaxing. That's how I relax. First, first we're going to de-escalate everything. Everything is de-escalated, but you got to And naked, then we're going to let you pull get the dressed. guy out, embarrass him in front of these neighbors. Then we're no going to let you get How dressed. are you guys going to fix that after this? Okay. How are you going to fix my dressed. life after this? So eventually, they take him to another uh, interrogation room where they do give him a swab, and that's when he starts getting angry. You know what I am. You know I'm a taxi driver who does his job every night. Why do you need those? It's just an investigative... uh, uh... Does that mean you found her? I hope you did. But obviously, if you did, it's not the right way. Not if you need buckle swabs. It's the first time I've ever had peace, man. I was doing something good. I was helping people every night. Every night, all I do is help people. I didn't give you permission. I didn't give you permission. Can you open your mouth to ah? That's a violation. How is that a violation? He just stuck something in my fucking mouth and took something that belongs to me. It doesn't matter. That's not right. Especially from someone who got a phone call and went to try and pick up a girl that called me, and then when I got there, she's not there. And you guys put some shit in my mouth? You guys are fucking disgusting creatures. It's a sterile creature. Shut up. I am now going to give you back. Whatever. I hate you, man. Give me your cash back. Your belt buckle. Your 10 cents. And your... You're a disgusting human being. So is your fucking judge. There's a copy of this at your residence. 
but I'm gonna give you this copy. I as don't well, care. I don't want to hear anything else from you. You're a liar, and you fucking steal. You stole my fucking DNA. But, you know, it's one of those things where odd behaviors and, and previous history just isn't enough to actually prosecute someone. And so does the investigation kind of come to a general halt? It does. So there's no evidence in the cabs. There's no evidence um, in the neighborhood. There's no evidence in the apartment. Nothing that would point to anybody specific. All they have in this case is circumstantial evidence that could put a bunch of people in the position to murder Adrian. Until August. Until August. Breaking news now. A body discovered at Apache Junction. Tepe police are there. We have Sky 12 over the scene. You know, my thoughts are, are scattered. It's more of physical pain now. Uh, the, the torture, the living hell that I'm going through right now. We had one of our massive monsoon storms. And it was, it was a bad one. It was a lot of flooding. It was a lot of water, a lot of rain. The next day, once the water receded, a homeowner there was walking in back of his property and found Adrian's body. They had no idea who it was. It took them a long time to figure out who it was. The body was in a state of decay, as they called it, desiccation. Uh, the remains were mummified. It only was until they came back with a DNA test and matching up uh, surgical scars and dental information that they determined that the remains were uh, Adrian Salinas. So in the area where she was found, there's a lot of washes that kind of come together, but there's one main one called Weeks Wash. And it's a little hard to follow this thing all the way. It goes into the Lost Dutchman uh, Superstition Mountains area. Police are fairly confident that she was not left where she was found. She washed downstream in this rainstorm. So at some point, Adrian's body was left in a stream at least 30 miles away from where she disappeared. And no one has any idea how she got there. Adrian's family and friends are, of course, devastated. And new questions come about many having to do with the condition of and lack of information on her body. Yeah, the autopsy was redacted, obviously, for um, us. You know, they don't include all of the information. But there's a level of redaction we don't see a lot, and that is redaction and redaction by omission. And what I mean by that is the skeletal chart is omitted, and the references to most of her body parts are also omitted. So there are descriptions of skin, descriptions of hair, descriptions of um, potential injuries, descriptions of the neck, you know, uh, hair uh, still attached to skin on the neck. There is no reference to her head or her hands. And no one will answer whether or not her head or hands were ever found, which could go a couple of different ways. You know, you can say that either... Her body was out there so long that in a state of mummification and decay that her head and hands simply came off. That's kind of a stretch, though, that the only thing that would disappear from her body were the identifying parts of it. The thing that struck me, though, on the autopsy report that would lead me to believe that it was not just from environmental or animal intrusion is that they say that the bones are not sun-bleached and that there was still... 
they weren't just bones. So it, it seems to me like she would have been covered in some way, either by water or by dirt, um, because there wasn't the bleaching from being out, you know, exposed to the elements, which opens up the possibility for a completely random encounter, someone that is not on the radar of the police at all. Yes. And, and at this point, it could literally be anybody. With inconclusive evidence and no official cause of death, Adrian's family and Tempe police were at a complete and devastating standstill. Detective Aki continued to follow any leads and keep the family up to date, but no one was any closer in getting justice for Adrian. Hello? Francisco. Yes? This is Detective Aki. How's things going? Oh, uh, okay. All right. Have you, have you heard so? any word or anything? No, nothing new. Two years go by without any new information. But then, in 2015, a local man is arrested for murders that happened 20 years before Adrian's death. It was as brutal as it was perplexing. Two young women, 22-year-old Angela Brasso and 17-year-old Melanie Burness, found dead, their bodies mutilated. But just as suddenly as those murders started, the crime stopped without an arrest. Until now. Tonight, after more than 20 years, a Phoenix man is behind bars accused of both murders. This arrest came absolutely out of nowhere. All of a sudden, Phoenix police were swarming around this house and removing tons and tons of things from inside this house, laying it out on the backyard, cataloging everything. And they're saying that he had allegedly killed two women, you know, in their late teens, early 20s, back in the 90s, and had been living a seemingly normal life ever since. He was known to a lot of people as the zombie hunter. He was into a cosplay uh, community, steampunk, cosplay, that kind of thing. One of the cars he drove was sort of an old station wagon, almost looked like Ecto-1 from Ghostbusters, but it was tricked out to be the zombie hunter. And that was the part that he played, was Zombie Hunter. So he would go to Comic-Cons and, and, you know, steampunk meetups and things like that. And that's where he got to know a lot of people in the community. But he was still pretty distant. I've only found one person who said that they were actually really good friends with Brian Patrick Miller, and that's Keena's area. The year before the arrest, we, our, our relationship really started off, and we started really, you know, talking about personal issues and his issues with women and, and stuff like that. And I never pried with him because I knew his level and I knew his limit. So I just, I hardly ever pried. What Keen started to wonder was if he had anything to do with any of these other unsolved murders. Because Keen knew something that not a whole lot of people did. He knew where Brian Patrick Miller was the night Adrian Salinas disappeared. And he was a half mile away from her house. It was a friend's house. It was a housewarming party slash pig roast. You know, Brian even had a notion for showing up early, helping out with the things like that. So it just seemed like him that if he might have, it's just a hypothesis that just came to me. And I'm not, I don't, I didn't want to shut up about it. I just like, all right, well, it's starting to fit a little uncomfortable that he was there. When Adrian's body was found, it was found in weeks wash. That's when Keen remembered that they used to do scavenger hunts together. He and Brian Patrick Miller. I worked for the Times when I met Brian. I was a cartoonist there. And uh, they had these treasure hunts. And, and they'd give you these Dr. Seuss kind of kind of clues. Well, the last one, about a year before Salinas went missing, was, was where I went looking around Weeks Wash. Because there was this clue that said, 
look for the one with, with long arms, and everybody knew him in a cactus, and they already pointed out it was out west by that area, and they said, this is not a hunt for the week. There's a lot of wordplay involved, and I said, week's wash, let's, let's go to week's wash. He worked right down the path at the fairgrounds there, and if the, if the shoe fits, or the, or the GM, you know, GPS fits, and he's there where you just gotta take it where it leads. So at this point, you got a person who is arrested and accused of two murders, both women, late teens, early 20s, one of which was found, actually both of which were found in a canal, and one of them was found without a head. Uh, the headline at the time in the paper was... Um, um, skinned like the Silence of the Lambs. And you've also got Brian Patrick Miller a half mile away from Adrian, who was late teens, early 20s, and very familiar with the area where her body was found later on. So at this point, that's the only evidence that anybody has to potentially link him to this case. But it's as circumstantial as a lot of the other evidence in the case. And unfortunately, the police, I believe, try and pursue to interview him, but he's unwilling. Yeah, because he still has not gone to trial for those two murders in the 90s. He is still waiting on trial years and years later. You know, it just keeps getting postponed and um, uh, pushed back and moved back and more delays. So even now, Brian Patrick Miller is still only accused of the canal murders. But we do know he has a brutal history of violence stemming all the way back to his teenage years. He was in uh, juvenile custody for stabbing a woman outside of a mall in Paradise Valley, suburb of Phoenix. Um, and we have the psychologist notes from that case where he said he just wanted to know what it felt like. And when the psychologist asked him what did it feel like, he said it sent pins and needles or shivers up his spine. Once he aged out of the juvenile system, uh, he was basically free. The next time that we know that he was involved with the law and with any kind of violence was in Washington State in the Seattle area, where he was accused and arrested and put on trial for uh, allegedly attacking another woman up there. She said that she had uh, been given a ride by Brian Patrick Miller and that he attacked her with a knife. He stabbed her, I believe, in the neck, but then he claimed self-defense. Yeah, he claimed self-defense. He claimed that she had attacked him, and the jury believed him, and he got off on that charge. And after he got off on that charge, he left Washington and came back down here to Phoenix, where, for all intents and purposes, he stayed under the radar until he was arrested for double murder. So with a cold case like this, what is next? At this point, they've exhausted all leads. They have interviewed everybody that's ever been involved in this case. They've interviewed people that have not been involved in this case, people that just kind of popped up. Um, they're at a standstill right now. They're looking for any kind of tips, anybody who remembers anything, anybody who knows anything about this case to come forward. Uh, they have people that they would like to talk more to. Uh, Tom Simon Jr. is definitely one of them. Brian Patrick Miller is another one. They have people they're continuing to talk to, like Fran. And it's not getting them anywhere at this point. They hope that something 
you know, doing documentaries or doing podcasts like this will shake loose some sort of new information that they don't have and try to get some sort of suspect in this case. Because right now they don't have anything. It's just sitting there as a cold case. They haven't given it up by any means. They're still doing investigation. It's still on the top of uh, Detective Aki's list. You know, he still pays attention to this case because he was the original uh, detective on this thing. He wants this case solved as much as anybody else does, and he's still continuing continuing to investigate it. But at this point, they have nowhere to go. You know, they've exhausted all of their evidence that they can possibly bring up. You know, there's no... I think the, one of the most frustrating things about this is they can't even say definitively that Adrian was murdered. You know, that there's no cause of death. There's no manner of death. All they know is that they found a body that is hers. So they can't say legally whether she was driven there and murdered or whether or not she fell in a wash somehow. They don't even know that. But that would be extremely unlikely that somehow she got out there 30 miles away on her own with no car. Give it. But they, they want some sort of information that's going to kickstart this and move it forward. And that's pretty much all they can do at this point. So, Spencer, that was a riveting story. There's so many layers to it and just an ongoing saga. What was it like to talk to William Pitts? Yeah, you know, Jessica, William was awesome to talk to. Uh, He had actually created this documentary called Quarter Mile, which is on KPNX. Uh, It was a 45-minute long doc, and I was able to just pretty much look at that and follow the story beats. He was just awesome to talk to, really nice guy, and just so well-versed in this story. I think one of the things that kind of captured me in in this story is is you go from possible suspect to possible suspect and and you just don't know where it's going to turn next. Did you kind of get that sense while you were doing this story? When when murders like this happen, the police first look at um, family and friends and people that might have an interest in the person that was you know, taken or killed. When everyone checked out, then they started looking at neighbors and and more extended people that were out in the community. And without a lot of evidence for Tom Simon Jr., who was the driver that night that was going to pick up Adrian, they just cut him loose. The police cut him loose. And then the final um, theory with Brian Patrick Miller, who is the accused murderer of two different women before Adrian's disappearance, 20 years before Adrian's disappearance, um, he hasn't even gone to trial for those original murders. Spencer, we talk about ins and outs of cases. The portion of this story that is sort of flabbergasting, in addition to others, is the trip to the Grand Canyon. I mean, it feels like a novel. And these people are in a taxi cab and all these sort of strange things are going on, right? Tom Simon Jr. was hired by this couple to take them to the Grand Canyon. And it was just a really weird ride. Uh, according to police records, there was just very odd discussion and there was a hacksaw at one point. And uh, this interaction was the major reason why Tempe police started looking at Tom Simon Jr. as a major person of interest in this case. And as we have made clear, no one has been charged with the murder of Adrian Salinas. This is a really good example of how someone may be acting in a certain way or responding or interrogations may go strangely, which they certainly do. This is the police interview with him in this story. Uh, but it doesn't necessarily mean that's a slam dunk case by any means. Right. Odd behavior doesn't mean that you can charge someone. It's not illegal to be odd. So, Spencer, one of the things that 
I found interesting about this story is we kind of we give a great inside look at to how police investigations kind of happen and, and go through the the murder case and the 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 suspects that they are looking at. And I think we really lay that out for the listener to kind of follow along in this investigation. The investigators and the initial investigation was incredibly thorough and detailed, and the investigation has not stopped. They are still following leads and trying to come up with new theories to try and get justice for Adrian. All right, we will be back with you next week with a new story and a new case. And hey, Spencer, thanks for joining us and welcome to the team. Glad to be here. True Crime Chronicles is a Vault Studios production. You can tell your friends to listen, subscribe, rate, and review our show on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Google Podcasts, Stitcher, and all major listening apps. You can find Vault Studios on Twitter, Instagram, and check out our Facebook group, Gone Cold, where we discuss this and other cases.